Set on the sandy, pebbly western shore of Loch Lomond in Scotland is the quaint picture postcard village of Luss. The picturesque row of little sandstone and slate cottages are surrounded with beautiful gardens and flowers. As we walked through this little town, it felt just like a step back in time. And as I snapped photos of my dream cottage getaway, we noticed across the street in the center of the village was the most amazing small stone church complete with a steeple and yes, a graveyard. Join me in a wander through Luss Parish Church and through the stones and foundations that signify 1,500 years of worship and burials. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. And taphophiles, I am your host, Lachelle. Welcome to our podcast, Stones, Bones, and Shadows, where we take you to burials all over the world. Today, I am here with my husband, Brad. Welcome, Brad. Hey, how's it going? Here I am again. I know, you're back. Well, you were the perfect one to have on the podcast today because... We went to this amazing little kirkyard together when we were on our trip to Scotland and London, and it was so fun. It was a great place. It was. Okay, I know I have many favorite graveyards, but this really comes in close to the top. And it wasn't really because there were so many famous people buried here. We literally didn't know a soul that was buried there. No pun intended. But this place was just magical to me. We walked into the gated kirkyard through the grass and looked at all the moss-covered stones. And many of you couldn't even read because, you know, the moss and the deterioration over hundreds of years. But it was shady and sunny in places and beautiful with trees and with the lock down below, this tiny church that was built in 1875, rising above the graves, sheltering them. What do you remember about Luss and then the kirkyard, Brad? I just remember the kirk was just the quaintest, cutest little thing. It's small. Yeah. And the graveyard around it was just the lush green grass, which being from Arizona, we always look right. where there's lush and green and <laughs> yeah. go, wow, what's that? Mm -hmm. But it was it was just the neatest, small, off-the-beaten-path little cute place. It was. And the stones, it was like we kept seeing things that were in the 1700s, which was very common in this graveyard. And we know that there's even older, but... We don't see many graves from the 1700s out in the west 
of America. Right. And to see graves from the 1700s really caught our attention. It's probably the mm -hmm. first time we saw something that old. And, yeah. And so it really caught our eye. Yeah. And then there's just something about, I know moss is bad and everything, but just kind of something about that moss creeping over and all the different colors of stones and the shapes. And it just all felt really ancient there at this little stone church. Yeah, it was the real vibe with the moss and the mm -hmm. ambiance and, and the, the old. And, and the village right there. Everything just kind of seemed like, like I said, like you step back in time. Right. The Lust Church is actually the third church built on this site on the banks of Loch Lomond. The present church of Lust was built in 1875 and succeeds a church open for worship in 1771, which was erected on the site of a pre-Reformation chapel. They believe there have been ecclesiastical sites here since AD 510. Isn't that just wild? That is wild. That's a long time ago. Yeah, and That's it'll explain it here in a minute. We'll talk about that. But so they believe that there's actually been three different churches in this same church site. And AD 510 is about the time or just shortly after the Anglo-Saxon invasions of Britain after the Romans pulled out in the 400s. So that's way early. Mm -hmm. So, and, and obviously the Scots weren't Anglo-Saxons. They would have been Celtic people, but that's going way back. Yeah. The present Lust Church building underwent a major restoration program in 2001. Archaeological work in preparation for a golf course on the banks of Loch Lomond discovered Christian remains which substantiated Lus's claim to be 1,500 years of continuous Christian presence here. They love that, that they can say, Christian presence here at our church for 1,500 years. And that was a, you know, a big thing for them. The Lus Parish Church remains a small congregation. There are around 100 people living in the village and slightly over 400 living in the parish, according to the last census figures. But over the course of a year, more than 750,000 visitors come to the village and many of them to the church and pilgrimage center. That's a lot of people. For a small town. For that little tiny, yeah. not even a town, it's just a little village. And it's right here where you just almost want to sing, little town. It's a quiet village. <laughs> you want to bust into bell songs from Beauty and the Beast, right? Yeah, I was thinking of the Loch Lomond song. Oh, I know. Yeah, you want to sing on the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond, that right? One. Is that that yeah, one? That one. Yeah. Also, many, many people come here to be married in this cute little church house. And they said that people from all over the world come so that they can have their wedding in this cute little parish church. And I just love that and there's just, I just wish we'd have known about it. <laughs> the church has beautiful stained glass windows and uniquely timbered roof. It's in the shape of a cruciform, but it's so small that it's not really that noticeable that it's actually the cruciform shape. But if you look at pictures of it, you see that it's a little longer on this side and and it does come out on the sides where there would be the cross piece. So 
It's just so cute and tiny. It's just the perfect little church. The church is called St. Kessig after said saint, and the church has an effigy of him inside the church. And it's said that St. Kessig brought Christianity to the area of Lusk around 510 AD, the early Middle Ages. So that's kind of why Christianity was coming to this area yeah. and why they call it the beginning of Christianity in this area is because of the saint. Saint Kessig was an Irish missionary and Roman Catholic saint. He is remembered as one of the first Christian martyrs of Scotland. He was born in the royal family in Munster, son of King of Cashel in Ireland. Kessig is claimed to have worked miracles even as a child. It is said that a swimming accident when he was a child led to the deaths of the sons of a number of visiting princes. Kessig brought them back to life and averted a war by spending a night in prayer. He was then educated at a monastery by St. Patrick and St. McAloy before setting out for Scotland. He became a missionary bishop in Scotland, using Monk's Island in Loch Lomond as his headquarters, which was once the site of a monastery. A large house has stood on the site, and the island is predominantly wooded. It has been here that the monks rang the bell to the call of prayer. Luss was the principal center of his following with a sanctuary granted by Robert the Bruce. Wow, Robert the Bruce. Yeah, St. Kessig was reputed to be of Roman army descent, his father also being in the Roman army. This is all, it's just wild. He was known as the soldier saint or priest soldier as he went about ministering with a sword tied to his waist. His coat of arms shows a soldier's habit holding a bow bent with an arrow in it. He frequented the Lennox area from the Firth of Clyde inland to Callender, Stirling, and Glasgow. There is a well at the honey home between Balfron and Fintry called St. Kessig's Well, where he baptized his converts. He evangelized the surrounding area until he was martyred. He was attacked and killed. Local legend supposes that he was found dead at this well where he had gone to quench his thirst and rest after walking some considerable distance. Some claim he was buried at Bandry where there's a heap of stones that is known since then as St. Kessig's Cairn. Part of the cairn at Bandry was removed in the 18th century to clear the way for a road. At that time, they found a stone statue of St. Kessig inside of it. And this medieval effigy was of an abbot or bishop, and it now resides in the church. They believe that he is buried in Lust, somewhere near the church that bears his name. A permanent settlement has probably existed here in Lust since the 1300s. The less you see today owes much to the local landowners, the Cahoons who lived in nearby Rostu Castle. In the early 1800s, they rebuilt much of the village, in part to house workers for the nearby slate quarries. Slate no longer features in the local economy. If today, it's more of a tourist destination for those wanting to enjoy Loch Lomond. 
or simply like us that day, those who are pausing on their journeys from Glasgow to further north up in the highlands. This was such an amazing little village that I was so happy not to have missed it. This village even has a kilt maker and a bagpipe works. And it had an ice cream shop, which is always at the top of my list, as you know. Right, from the <laughs> Isles of Erin. That's right, the creamery from the Isles of Erin, wasn't it? Yep. Oh, that was so good. Loch Lomond is so beautiful and easily accessible here. And from the pier, you are treated to stunning views across it to Ben Lomond, Scotland's most southerly mountain. It's over 3,000 feet high. I've read that Les's popularity and its accessibility means that it can sometimes be quite crowded, but if you catch it at a quiet moment, you can really soak it in. And luckily, that morning, it was quiet and we had the kirkyard to ourselves. And sometimes that's a great thing about being a taphophile. You head straight to the place where most of the tourists are not really that interested in, right? So I usually find that the cemeteries and graveyards are the most quiet and peaceful places, even in bustling cities and touristy towns. It's always nice when you have the place to yourself. Yeah. It makes a big difference. So it was just quiet and peaceful, and we were able just to walk around and look at all of the different stones and just marvel at how old they are and try to read the inscriptions, the really old ones. And, and to wander at our leisure and not worry about if anybody was in our pictures. That's true. It's a good thing. <laughs> there is even evidence of its old age in the cemetery as there are quite a few burials and monuments that are pre-18th century. Since the archaeological evidence suggests that at least one earlier church and graveyard may have been sited slightly to the south of the present church, that would account for the way the earlier graves are situated. The ancient graveyard has 15 listed ancient monuments, meaning early medieval and medieval period monuments, including simple cross slabs which may date to as early as the 7th century AD. And that's just mind-blowing that there's grave markers back to the 7th century. That's pretty old. Yeah. There are several later medieval copped grave covers in the graveyard as well. Copped usually is a surround on top of the grave, so now they would probably do that in cement, and it would be kind of a curbing around the grave and that can be filled with gravel. Um, but in the older ones that you see, they're usually carved from stone and sometimes they were filled with rock or plants or flowers. And it's just so amazing to have these early stones from medieval times in this little kirkyard. And there's something else that is so extraordinary. There is a Viking burial here in this little kirkyard. Wow. The monument is known as a Viking hogback stone. This rare stone probably dates back to around 1260 when the Vikings raided this local area. And the stone really has nothing to do with a hog or its back other than that rounded shape of, I guess, a hog lying down. 
or it's a similar shape to an overturned boat. These stones are designed to make the tombs of the dead look like the mighty buildings in the Norse style. The bow-sided shape of the hogbacks are similar to the classic Viking house, and the interlaced patterns on them are also very Scandinavian in origin. But this type of stone is only found in the British Isles. Isn't that interesting? So they didn't have these stones back in Scandinavia, and they date to the 10th to the 12th centuries. They're Anglo-Saxon in origin, but not found in Scandinavia, and there's none to be found before the Vikings came raiding in Great Britain, only after. Govan in Glasgow has large numbers of hogbacks and various other ancient stones. The hogbacks are exclusively in areas of Northern Britain settled by Vikings, Southern Scotland, Cumbria, and Yorkshire. And so I just thought that that was so interesting. It really is. You know, that the Vikings were there and they had this kind of stone that they used. It has carvings on the side that you can just barely make out. The stone has four rows of round-ended tiles on the roof, which they're calling the roof, the rounded part. And researchers date this to the 11th century. So this top portion looks like a tile roof with overlapping rounded tiles. If you think of a roof that had, you know, little scalloped edge kind of, and then the next row, almost like mermaid scales or something like that, that you would draw. The vertical sides were later recut, probably in the 12th century. So someone came along later and kind of carved in something a little different. The north side carries a Romanesque arcade of nine bays, a row of round-headed arches, and the south side has, has a four-bay arcade. This stone is thought to be dated from the Loch Lomond Raid of 1263, where Vikings had pillaged and settled on the Loch side. So they know of an exact you know, date of when the Vikings came to this area. So I thought that that was kind of awesome too. This stone was unearthed in 1926 and until very recently had been covered in moss, but now it is restored. So we went back and looked at our photos. And it's covered in moss. And it's covered in moss. And so when I read about this, I was like, I didn't see anything like that. But then when we went back and looked at the photos, I said, that's it right there. But it was just this mossy rounded hump that, I mean, I did take a picture of, but didn't have any idea of the significance. Of course, we took this trip in 2012. 2012. Yes. And so I didn't do all of the cemetery research before we went to graveyards before then. Anyway, so... I think though, that even though they restored it as it is with all kind of rainy climates, the moss will just keep coming back. So they'll have to probably keep cleaning it off. But as with all the graves there, there was a lot of moss. They need some D2. Yeah, there are a lot of graves with a list of a whole family. 
They put up the monument with the first few deaths and continued to record new deaths underneath on the same monument. It's a lot more economical that way. Sure is. There were many names we were familiar with with Scottish clans and some ancestor names of ours as well, including Aitken, Scott, Armstrong, MacDonald, Brody, Macbeth, McQueen, Buchanan, Burns, of Bobby Burns fame, <laughs> Camerons, and Campbells. And then there's the Cahoons. Clan Cahoon is an old clan in Scotland, and it's actually spelled C-O-L-Q-U-H-O-U-N, but I wanted to make sure that I was saying it right, and it is pronounced Cahoon or Cahoon. And their ancestors, their descendants that have moved to Nova Scotia and America, it's changed. So that would be who now would be the Calhouns, C-A-L-H-O-U-N. Three chiefs from their clan are buried in Lust Parish Church graveyard. And in fact, the Cahoons are responsible for the rebuilding of this church in 1875. I'll tell you the event later that happens, that kind of makes that happen. Their graves are sitting up against a tree and are recognized from a distance as the words are marked in red at the top. And I would butcher them if I tried to speak Gaelic, but it's spelled C-N-O-C-E-L-A-C-H-A-N. The words are Gaelic and mean Clan Cahoon. Knock. Elegant. Yeah, something like that. And the wife of one clan chief is also buried beside them. There are many more Cahoons buried in this graveyard. I found at least 60 on Find a Grave. Before the 13th century, the family held Dun Dunglas Castle near Dumberton. However, a century later, they would go on to gain their current territories on the shores of Loch Lomond near Luss, where their current clan seat, Ross Dew House, is located. Malcolm, Earl of Lennox, granted the lands of Cahoon to Humphrey of Kilpatrick during the time of Alexander II. These lands are located in the county of Dunbarton. The old Earls of Lennox continued to possess Luss until Sir Robert Kilpatrick of Cahoon wed the only daughter and child of the Laird of Luss in about 1368. Thus, their leader has since been referred to as Chief of Cahoon and of Luss. This old established family in Dunbartonshire had extensive land holdings around Loch Lomond. One famous historical event connected with them is the Battle of Glenfruin in the winter of 1602, and then it went over into 1603. I thought this was really an interesting story because I didn't know much about this clan, first of all. It's not one of the ones that I've heard a lot about before. And 
And so to read more about the people that are buried here in Luss and in this little graveyard and their, you know, ancestors and, and the people were there that I just, I just thought that it was really interesting to read up on their history. Accounts vary, but the episode seems to have started when two McGregors traveling back to their lands near Inversnade became benighted, which I had to look up because I didn't know what benighted means. Do you know what it means? Nope. <laughs> it means overtaken by darkness. So basically they were traveling home, night fell, it got too dark, and when they requested accommodation by the local Cahoons near Luss, they were refused. Well, and you can almost give him this because McGregor's were notorious for cattle stealing. So I'm thinking that the Cahoons were not too keen on housing them. Well, the McGregor's, they then killed and ate a Cahoon sheep. And so for this, the McGregor's were subsequently hanged some say even after having offered payment for their dinner and it was turned down. In 1603, the wild clan Gregor made a ferocious raid into Luss. So next, the Cahoon wives of those killed made a plea to King James VI by waving the bloodied shirts of their husbands that were dead and wounded some say a few extra shirts were added and died in sheep's blood. And the king outlawed the McGregor clan from attacking the Cahoons again. Next, there was a discussion about compensation that was said to have been started between the two parties at a meeting in Glen Fruin, the Glen of Sorrow. And the result was a pitched battle. There is a difference in how many men fought in the text that I've read, but there were around 500 on the side of the Cahoons and 300 that were on horseback. That's a lot of men. And then the McGregors had about 400 men there. The clan leader, Alistair McGregor, his battle experience proved successful. He split his forces to attack the Cahoons front and rear. Some say, over 200 Cahoons were slain, and only two McGregors were killed in this battle, one of them being the chief's brother, Ian. They followed this up by burning and pillaging all the lands around Luss, and even murdering a party of schoolboys from Dunbarton who had turned up to watch the fight. Wild. That's wild, right? That's classic. Scottish clan, clan feud. Yes. And so then the chief of Cahoon and Luss survived the battle, but was later killed in the castle as he sought safety. The horrified king gave orders for the punishment of the clan. Their houses were burned, their names prescribed, and they were hunted down relentlessly. Alistair McGregor, their chief, was betrayed by the Campbell Earl of Argyleshire, for which the whole clan Gregor were outlawed by a special act of council. The McGregor chief, Alistair, was promptly captured by treachery <laughs> in the book 
they have a book that I found a lot of these stories that was called Rastu. And it's, it's all about the house, the castle, and all the cahoons. And so I loved the way they, they put it. Like they were so indignant about being betrayed by the Campbell Earl. But he was executed with 11 of his principal clansmen being public, publicly hanged his own height above the rest. All others who dared call themselves McGregor were hunted down with bloodhounds and put to death. And it was generations before the name was finally allowed again. Must have been allowed by the time there you have Rob Roy McGregor because he was a McGregor. So that was in the 1700s. So I guess after a couple generations, they were like, okay, I guess all the bad ones are out, right? The forgiving Cahoons came to sympathize with them, and they even sometimes illegally sheltered fugitive McGregors, for which, ironically, they were themselves fined. In the 18th century, two clan chiefs, Sir James Cahoon, the 27th of Luss, and the McGregors made amends with a ceremonial handshake on the overgrown side of the battlefield of Glenfruin. So, not till much later did they actually make up. So they went out and had a big handshake and, like, this is over now. Another Cahoon was Sir John Cahoon, 15th of Lust, and he was knighted by Mary, Queen of Scots, who twice stayed at Rosdew House and is mentioned in the mysterious casket letters, her alleged secret correspondence with Bothwell. Interesting, right? Yeah. In 1592, Sir Humphrey Cahoon, 16th of Lust, had an affair with the McFarlane's chief's wife. The enraged McFarland surprised him at his dalliance and pursued him past Radu. <laughs> That's one way to say it. They they surprised him at his dalliance. <laughs> they caught them in the act. Yeah, and then pursued him past Rostu to Banakra, another of his castles where they tried to smoke him out. <laughs> in the ensuing confusion, Sir Humphrey Cahoon was slain by an arrow apparently treacherously fired within the castle by his brother and heir, of course, who, who was afterwards executed for the crime. Sir Humphrey's body was mutilated in a particularly revolting, though appropriate, manner, and the trophy <laughs> served up to poor Lady McFarlane as a mocking dish. How about that for retribution? So isn't that so funny how this book said it? I, that just cracked me up. His body, I mean, mutilation, I know, is no laughing matter, but his body was mutilated in a particularly revolting, though appropriate manner. What what mutilation is done appropriately? He had and it coming. served up to his girlfriend. Oh, that's an awful story. Among a distinguished line of chiefs, Sir John Cahoon, the 19th of Lust, was a necromancer, skilled in black magic, and the last known to openly practice witchcraft. And that's what is said in their book. I don't know if the last known 
Cahoon to practice witchcraft, but it says he was made one of the first baronets of Nova Scotia in 1625 and married a sister of the great Montrose, who frequently stayed at Rosdew. But Sir John fell in love with his wife's pretty sister, Lady Catherine Graham, and after eloping, he fled with her abroad. Some of the things I read made it sound like that he lured her away with black magic. And so I don't know if he literally practiced black magic or if they just assumed he could have only done this through magic. Wow. Wow. The sinister Laird's successor, Sir John Cahoon, 20th of Lust, was so swarthy and haughty that he was nicknamed the Black Cock of the West. Oh boy. Yeah. His portrait of Ross Dew is of unusual interest, and it shows him in his red baronial robes, edged with white fur, and may be unique for this period. And this time, Ross Dew Castle was twice occupied by the English Cromwellians for a short while. Interesting, right? Yeah. I just thought this was just such interesting history. Later, there was a Sir James Cahoon, and he was the 25th of Lus. He was one of the earliest officers in the famous regiment, the Black Watch. He went on to found the attractive town of Helensburgh, named after his wife, Lady Helen Cahoon. Well, that's nice to know that one of these guys loved their wives. That's great. The 28th chief so unfortunately drowned in Loch Lomond in 1873. He drowned when he and others rode out to bring back a deer for a Christmas feast. He and all of the four others on board were lost in Loch Lomond during a sudden storm. And it may sound like weird, like they got in a boat to go get a deer, but there were these little islands that are out, you know, in the lock. So they had rowed out to a lock to get a deer for Christmas. It is said that the people of Rostu could hear the cries of the men, but thought that they were happy cheers. So it's super Isn't sad, that sad that they were at that moment drowning and crying out, but their families thought that they had got a deer and were having fun. They just heard these cries and just thought that they were, you know, joyful cries, woohoo, or something. And it was really dying because they were, a big storm had come up. And so that is when the Cahoons then rebuild this church and dedicate it to St. Kessig. And the graves of these men are marked by a single dark stone that is shaped as a scroll and behind it is a cross with the IHS symbol on it. IHS are the first three letters of the name Jesus in Greek. So if you see IHS that that refers to Jesus. Okay. Interesting, right? And I saw many of those before I understood that. And I always, I just thought maybe it was initials or something like that. And so they are on the cross piece of the cross. 
and it's kind of sitting on a dark block that has some carved things at the bottom that look like leaves. And the graves are in a small fenced area with white rock underneath, but there's all these beautiful ferns and plants that are growing there. And the inscription says, in memory of James, Baronet of Colhoun, of Colhoun and Luss, born February, and then you can't see the date, uh, 1804. And also John Boyd, born April 23rd, 1829. James Spottiswood, born March 1822. Angus MacDonald, born June 15th, 1839. Thomas Anderson, born June 25th, 1856, who were all drowned together in Loch Lomond on December 18th, 1873. And then it says below, where thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. Well, that's kind of sad, huh? Yeah. Um, there's another Cahoon grave that says, in memory of John Cahoon, died 29th of June, 1938, aged 76 years, and his wife, Agnes Hawson, died 18th January, 1943, aged, and then you can't see the number, years. Their eldest daughter, Mary, died 21st April, 1981, aged 74 years. Their daughter, Agnes, or Nan, died 8th October 1984, aged 78 years. So that's where we were kind of talking about before where many of these stones, they have maybe the parents or a brother, and then as the stone goes down, there's more and more names added. Another one of these is of Alexander Begg. His inscription says, erected by Robert Begg, Farmer Blarnell, in memory of his son Alexander, who died 4th of October, 1865, age 19 years. His granddaughter, Jessie M. Begg, died 25th of October, 1917. Helen A. Begg, or Eve, died 30th October, 1934. And also, Isabel B. Begg died the 6th of March, 1949. So just a couple examples of how they just kind of kept adding on and some of them will be like, you know, usually his wife, but then sometimes it's, you know, his mother-in-law and then, you know, their son and his wife. So I, I think that that's really interesting. You don't see it quite like that as much in the States. I did see some like that when we were back in the South and it was usually when there was yellow fever or something like that, where lots of family members died at the same time. Yeah, it's great for genealogy, though. You have everybody mm -hmm. listed line by line in order, so you can kind of see how the gen you can see how the generations flow. Yeah, that's such a good point. That that really is helpful for genealogy, isn't it? Yeah. Sometimes you can find the death notices and things for the people that are buried there. This one was a woman named Annie McQueen Macbeth Brooks. Macbeth, wow. Yeah. 
and it says, married to Frank Brooks in Luss, Dunbartonshire in 1907. In the Glasgow Herald, Wednesday, December 25th, that's sad, 1918, death notice. Brooks at Man's Lodge, Luss, on 21st. Annie Macbeth, beloved wife of Frank Brooks, an eldest daughter of Archibald Macbeth, gamekeeper, Cam Stratton, age 31 years, funeral to Lust Churchyard today, Wednesday at 2.30. Wow. The inscription says, erected by Archibald Macbeth in loving memory of his wife, Annie McQueen, who died the 27th of July, 1917, age 54. Also their family, Archibald, Private First Gordon Private First Gordon Highlanders killed in action in France, 17th of June, 1915, age 26. That would have been First World War. Mm. Elizabeth died 10th of March, 1900, age 7 years. Annie died 21st of December, 1918, age 31 years. The mm. above Archibald Macbeth died 10th of August, 1926. Age 70 years. Also his son. And then it goes on. His son Duncan died the 24th of August, 1986. Age 86 years. And Catherine died the 16th of March, 1968. Age 60 years. Wife of the above, Duncan. So that just kind of went on and on of so many different people and generations like in the 1980s. Like, yeah, that's wild. And then on the pedestal, it says, thy will be done. And then there's quite a few of the ministers of the parish, which that makes total sense, right? Um, one of the inscriptions says, erected by his congregation to the memory of the Reverend Dunk Duncan Campbell, minister of the parish of Luss, Born 16th April 1821, ordained minister of Fossaway, 30th January 1846, inducted minister of Luss, 19th February 1852, died 23rd of March 1896, and of his wife, Margaret Bethune Bruce, died 30th of March 1913, aged 83. One of the very simple ones that I saw is just a very simple cross and it doesn't have any dates so you have no idea when she lived or died but it says in loving memory of Jesse McNaughton Fife so that is the Lus Kirkyard so fun I totally want to go back and wander around it some more it'd be interesting to see some of the restored graves of the Viking grave and some of the mm -hmm. things that were so mossed over that we really didn't realize what they were. Yeah. The yeah. I didn't realize there were such ancient graves that were there. We would have looked a little harder for some of those. Yeah. But a great place. It really was. Here's a fun fact about Lus. Between 1980 and 2003, Luss was the main outdoor filming location for a Scottish television drama series called Take the High Road. Have you heard of that? No. I've heard that it was really good. One of my friends loves that show. 
Largely as a result of this, the village of 120 residents attracts more than 750,000 visitors each year. And although the program is no longer made, the village's name in the series, Glendarick, is used for some buildings. Wow. So isn't that fun? We'll have to check that out. I know. So I guess that makes a little more sense as to why this little tiny village in Scotland attracts so many visitors is it was actually a television program over there. Yeah, but for us, the main attraction was the scenery, the kirkyard, Loch Lomond, the towering mountains. We were oblivious of a TV show. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I just wanted to buy one of those cute little cottages and just live there in that village forever. <laughs> it would be, it'd be super cool. Yeah. This was an unexpected little graveyard gem that we wandered across. This often happens when we're traveling. It doesn't have to be the biggest and most famous cemetery with the most famous people to find amazing history and stories. Sometimes the places we never knew even existed become the most interesting. Like Lus that we talked about today. The sweetest little kirk and burial ground with medieval graves, a Viking grave, and the history of a clan or a village's people. Those are the gems. There's a story beneath every stone. That's what I see when I look across a graveyard. All of the lives, the love, and the stories. Come back next time as I bring them all to you. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners.